So the race is on. And yes, you've heard us talk a little bit about the race that is taking place in Roanoke a couple months from now. The Star City Half Marathon and 10K. Those deals are up at InsaneRadioDeals.com for some special rates on entry into either one of those events. But it also feels like there's a race that's going on in college athletics. And it's part of what we've continued to discuss here in the Fast Lane, and we appreciate all of your feedback at Fast Lane, Ed Lane, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram on this. And that it seems like the race to be as best positioned as possible for whenever the TV money bubble bursts and where you are with your athletic department and the ability to fund a football team is the pay-for-play model becomes more prevalent than ever before. Perhaps it's Doomday, perhaps it's realistic. Somebody who can provide some perspective on that. He's been covering college football for quite a while now for CBSSports.com. He is part of the Cover 3 podcast, Chip Patterson. Back with us once again in the Fast Lane. Chip, welcome back. We are appreciative of your time once again. Is it a race right now to get as much money as possible before the TV bubble bursts and everybody's got to think of an economic model that's different from the one that appears to be coming into focus, at least in the short term? Yeah, I mean, the, I was actually thinking about this today that the, you know, the TV bubble might be a concern, but the the decisions that are being made by university presidents include, you know, concerns across higher education. You know, the same concerns that are being held uh, at some of these high-level Power Five institutions are also being felt at the FCS level, at Division Two, II, Division Three. You know, I, I am not an expert in these, but things like the enrollment cliff of 2026, tracking the a drop in birth rates that will then produce less 18-year-olds and potential college applicants uh, coming up in the next few years. You know, those kind of concerns, you know, tr- schools that are still trying to dig themselves out of holes that, you know, they got into during the pandemic and how the pandemic itself really uh, opened a lot of people's eyes into alternative methods of going about your higher education that are not the traditional show up on campus, pay for room and board and a full set of classes. So like I, you know, I, I, I both sort of am a little bit queasy at the idea that these university presidents and these schools are motivated to get every little bit of money as you can out of the athletics department and football programs in, in particular. But at the same time, Ed, I mean, you know, put in that same position, what other options do you have? It's just, I try not to be too judgmental at this time, but I understand why there is, you know, a lot of panic uh, throughout college athletics. Yeah, it's the way a lot of folks and administrators feel and then the way a lot of decision makers act upon that is Chip Patterson is with us here in the fast lane. Chip, um, the thing that keeps coming back to me, and it's a shame on me that I haven't read the book yet from Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg, but it was about the club and the uh, English Premier League and its growth to be a disruptive force, and it's reasonable to bring it up because that's what Greg Sankey has mentioned in terms of college athletics. Is that where we're ultimately trending in conference realignment that the top 32 or so brands and maybe you have a higher number, maybe you have a lower, but that those end up breaking off and create a different level of football altogether that is much different from what we have seen traditionally, but seem to be heading towards anyway. Well, there's the, you know, there there are the premier league inspirations that, you know, Greg Spanky has mentioned, but I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, consolidating the big draws and then demanding, you know, a television deal. And he arguably did that already with the addition of Texas and Oklahoma and uh, a new lucrative contract with ESPN, bringing everything all under one roof. 
Um, I I think that the the real fracturing that might be happening uh, on a different sort of level than what you know Greg Sankey might have initially envisioned is just the idea of amateurism in general, which finds itself in the courts in a way where if all of a sudden we, because of court rulings, have to entertain the idea of college football players as employees and we have to entertain revenue sharing, that's a point and a line in the sand. And I mentioned this on the Cover 3 podcast where I imagine that some of it will just sort of sort itself out, that there would be institutions that currently exist in a Power 5 conference that would just opt out of that experience. And the breakaway would be, okay, you know, who wants to compete at this level, at the very highest level where our college football players uh, are making guaranteed salaries and have revenue sharing and contracts. And the revenue that we are sharing comes from the television dollars, which is, you know, the greatest payout. You know, who is who wants to play that game, uh, I think, is going to be the real separator you know, the, the big brand thing, I, I would argue, has already sorted itself out um, with Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC, uh, with USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington making their way to the Big Ten. You know, there are a couple, a very, very few pieces left on the table that you would categorize as being the, you know, like really big national draw, national brand. And so I kind of think that we're at the end of that process. I think the breakaway will have more to do with employment and revenue sharing. Chip, out of the schools in the Atlantic Coast Conference, which is our backyard, uh, which ones do you identify as most likely or you're most confident would fit that description of being willing to go into the employee model of student-athletes or at least college football players? I think that um, the actions of Florida State, both in their public board meetings but also with the reports of them partnering with private equity money is about, I mean, that's, that's professionalization. You are running a business. You are not running um, the athletic department of 1980. You are running a modern-day business that generates millions and millions and millions of dollars. When you are talking about an athletic department and a university partnering with private equity, then you certainly are going to be able to stomach um, an employee model. So, I mean, Florida State, to me, is already starting down to the path to at least, you know, indicate that they would be one that would want to play at that level. And, you know, the, the rest might depend on, you know, tough decisions by the university and what their peer institutions do. You know, Virginia and Virginia Tech probably don't want to divide along those lines. They would probably like to be in lockstep. I think North Carolina and NC State, you know, probably want to make sure they are, you know, going to be on the same side one way or the other so there's a lot of interesting you know leadership and occasionally political decisions that might be coming when we get to that level at chip underscore patterson and of course the dialogue is always ongoing even in the midst of their win total podcasts at the cover three podcast as chip patterson of cbs sports is with us here in the fast lane you mentioned the political angle to this uh our owner actually of the virginia talk radio network a couple of days ago sent me the article about the attorney general jason miaris in virginia mentioning that he wants virginia and virginia tech to be on the same page that's not always the case we know there were political uh hands that were wrung the last time realignment involved those particular schools but do you see that being a reality for the four of the magnificent seven that would be tied North Carolina and NC State and Virginia and Virginia Tech to at least both landing in spots where they have a favorable chance to get what they want yeah um, I think that 
the I think the ACC is not like as close. I, I might be Pollyanna about this, but I don't think that the ACC is really on the chopping block. I think the ACC, as we know it, or its current membership, might not be long for the future. But I I do think that there are um, you know there are institutions in the ACC that enjoy you know sharing um, you know that that connection and they they find themselves as being like minded and you know our Virginia Virginia Tech North Carolina and NC State going about their business you know trying to play keep up with Ohio State and Alabama um, I I don't I don't think that that's their their top priority. You know, Bud Elliott mentioned on the Cover 3 podcast, he thinks that there's only 18 programs in the entire country that are, you know, going into every single offseason saying, what can we do to get closer to a national championship? I think there's a lot of programs in the ACC that are thinking, you know, what can we do to be the best that we could be today, this season? And, you know, if that includes competing for conference championships, that is a, a realistic goal. It's been a long time for some of the schools in North Carolina, NC State and um, North Carolina, not since 1979 and 1980. But, you know, you've, you've seen North Carolina play for it. NC State's knocked on the doorstep. Virginia Tech has won the ACC a couple times, and even the Wahoos have played for it. But, you know, national championship competing with Ohio State and Alabama and Georgia, like I, I don't think that that's part of the, the outlook. And if that's not the outlook, then why are you sweating a financial deficit? Florida State and maybe Clemson and maybe Miami too, you know, they envision themselves as national championship programs. And so because they're in the national championship club, they are concerned about you know, being $30 million behind their competitors. So I kind of think that you know, while everyone's trying to divide up the ACC and send some teams to the Big 12, some teams to the SEC, some teams to the Big 10, I kind of think that there is a chance that we're looking at the ACC, yes, operating at a deficit, but being able to make its way into the future of, you know, high-level college athletics, in part because some of those universities uh, all wanted to stick together. Shifting over to what's actually going to happen on the football field, first of all, Chip, do you get a chance to exhale when we make that proclamation as we're joining uh, up with you here in the fast lane? What do you mean, exhale? The fact that you can actually talk about football games as opposed to all the other stuff that uh, in a perfect world would always happen from like March through July when we need content. Yeah. I, unfor- so Texas and Oklahoma, that's two summers ago. Uh, USC and UCLA, that's last summer. Um, that, I mean, look, this, the, the summer before that was are we even going to play football at all? So I, I got to tell you, Ed, I'm, I'm a little, I'm unfortunately, unfortunately, a little bit um, conditioned to having to juggle lots of things. But, uh, you know, I've, I've told you before, I do my homework in June and it makes July and August a lot easier. So the football stuff, I've actually had locked and loaded for, you know, a month and a half, two months now. So you've made your projections for the ACC along with your Cover 3 podcast colleagues a couple of weeks ago, and it's up wherever you listen to podcasts, the Cover 3 podcast, as Chip Patterson is with us in the fast lane. Um, Interesting comment you made. Chip Clemson projected to win the ACC ahead of FSU, and Clemson's got seven, FSU four, in terms of preseason all-ACC honorees. We know those are only worth so much, but it's fun for us to look at right now. 
How much do you double down on the belief that I believe it was you guys who echoed this uh, on your ACC win total podcast, and that is if Clemson went the transfer portal route and did anything there, that gap might even be a lot wider than it's expected to be with Clemson narrowly ahead of FSU entering the season. Yeah, and just at, at like key focus positions, like some people call them high leverage positions. Some people call them pressure points on the football field. Um, you know, they are the wide receiver position, you know, the perimeter, and then being able to protect or get after the passer, right? You know, like if you've got uh, defensive ends and edge rushers that are unstoppable, it entirely freezes what an entire offense is trying to do. And now they've got to be concerned with that before they can even think about what they are going to do. Um, a wide receiver, if you have someone who demands double coverage nearly every time they're on the field, then, you know, you are taking a defense and you are basically tying one hand behind their back and being able to get a numbers advantage every single time you line them up. So wide receiver and edge rusher, two pressure points on the football field are two places where I think that Clemson either has um, some depth concerns or are still looking for that true, you know, high value go-to elite player. And so if they had gotten – one of the better wide receivers in the transfer portal and one of the better edge rushers in the transfer portal, then we'd be talking about Clemson, yes, as more of a runaway favorite than they are right now. I'm still a little bit of a believer um, in the general depth and, you know, where you're looking at, especially on the defensive side of the football, on the interior of the defensive line. Injury issues have forced a lot of different guys to play for this Clemson team. It, over the last you know two years or so, and I think that they've got a really strong unit there, and that offensively, just having the changeup of Garrett Riley and Cade Klubnick, like you're getting a an air raid Texas up tempo coach with somebody who played their high school at the juggernaut Austin Westlake. Like this is just a a nice stylistic fit to me that is going to allow for the best of Cade Klubnick to to come out, and then also. Maybe if you're a little bit concerned about not having that go-to high-end wide receiver, well, in the air raid up-tempo attack, we're throwing four options out there, and really the play is designed just to throw to the open guy. doesn't matter who it is. So can Garrett Riley scheme guys open in a way that you know makes their life and Cade Klubnick's life a little bit easier? Uh, we just saw him do it with TCU all the way to a national championship game, so I think he can do it with Clemson too. Chip, most people expect it's Clemson, Florida State, and then a gap back after that. Carolina and NC State, high-flying quarterbacks are at least historically proven. Miami, Duke, Pitt, Louisville, all have been trendy in some form or fashion, either exceeding expectations or something along those lines. Out of that bunch, are you confident in any of them that they could get up there and at least sniff competitiveness with the top two in the ACC? No, but the front of that conversation would be Pitt. Um, and that would be buying into the Phil Dracovic being the best of Phil Dracovic. Like he is, uh, you saw him at the ACC football kickoff. Like he is big and he looks like a capital Q quarterback. Like they used to make him six, five, big arm, you know, looks the part. He's athletic, um, but he's, you know, been up and down and had injury issues. He's linking up with his old offensive coordinator, Frank Tignetti, who was at Boston College when he played his best football. So that's encouraging. I mean, the offensive line is locked and loaded. The defense should be phenomenal. Uh, Rodney Hammond, who's coming in for Izzy Abinaconda, I think that he is going to have 
uh, a season that is not, maybe not just as productive, but definitely is not going to be a drop off in them doing what they want to do on the ground. And, you know, I, I think that Pitt is the one team that probably has the least amount of question marks in terms of what they can be. You know, with Louisville, you want to see if 25 transfers make the difference. Uh, with North Carolina, you want to see if the defense is going to be able to get anything going. Uh, Robert and I and Brendan Armstrong were terrific together. Can they be terrific together? As NC State might be having to play a lot of young guys at the wide receiver position. Um, you know, Duke has a ridiculous schedule where I just I don't think that they're going to be sniffing the ACC championship just because I think the conference schedule is too tough. So the front of that line for me of the teams you just gave me, I would go with Pitt. Last one for you, Chip. We're appreciative of your time. And, of course, you covered the ACC in the Cover 3 podcast, ACC win totals that were out a week or so ago. And folks can check that out wherever they listen to podcasts as Chip Patterson is with us here in the Fast Lane. Virginia Tech, Virginia. More folks are optimistic Virginia Tech could exceed expectations than Virginia. What's the path for bowl eligibility to either of those, or is it too far of a gap in your eyes? So Virginia, I do think is a gap. Um, I I think that the schedule is um, painful. I mean, the like I made the joke. I mean, and it, it was not a joke, but it was a stating of fact that William and Mary was an 11 win football team and went to the FCS quarterfinals last year. I mentioned that as though it was a real threat. I think Virginia wins that game. I have that game as a win for Virginia. But to be able to go up against Tennessee and Maryland, you're going to be a heavy underdog. Against JMU, you know that JMU is going to have a chip on their shoulder, be trying to make a statement with the in-state win. You're going to get the best of them, and they are one of the better teams in the Sun Belt. I mean, before you even get into the conference schedule, it's going to be tough to stack the wins necessary to get to bowl eligibility. For Virginia Tech, it's a little bit more interesting because I do like some of the transfer portal additions that Brent Pry was able to make, especially at the wide receiver position. But I've got questions about the quarterback. Um, it's just a, a really disappointing state of affairs, the performance they got last year. Again, we dip back into the portal to see if we can add a little bit of a spark. We'll see, man, because uh, it's going to take a couple recruiting classes for everything else to build back up to the talent level necessary uh, to, to really be playing the kind of Virginia Tech football that they want. I think that they're going to bring great effort and they're going to be in some coin flip games when they're going, you know, up against the likes of a Wake Forest, a Syracuse, a Boston College, and a Virginia. But being able to win those coin flip games is going to require more offensively than what they got last year. We get more every time from Chip Patterson, and he's gracious enough to give us some of his today in the fast lane. Chip, we will keep it locked to the Cover 3 podcast as we are subscribers uh, ourselves. Both our producer, Trey, and myself subscribe and listen. And, of course, we'll keep up with you at Chip underscore Patterson on Twitter. Thank you for some of your time today in the fast lane and look forward to speaking soon. Sounds good. Y'all be well. Indeed. Chip Patterson with us here in the fast lane. That does it for us today. Tons of good ACC talk and in college sports in general. Tomorrow, more on that, plus a lot of NASCAR in the fast lane on the CBS Sports Radio Lynchburg app.